Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. My name is Julian Carl, CEO of Synergen Group, and I think today's episode is a very interesting episode for a couple of reasons. So today I speak with Cameron Schwab, who is CEO of a brand new organization called Design CEO, where they're very much focused on providing learning opportunities and learning experiences for senior people in businesses. I think one of the things that is most interesting about this particular interview, though, is in his past roles, Cameron has been CEO of three AFL football club teams. And I think that in itself is very unusual. And during the interview, Cameron shares a, a, a couple of examples of what it's like to be a leader in that type of environment, which is very much the public domain. And I think that you'll get a lot out of really listening to some of the frameworks and the models and the way in which Cameron approaches leadership, which I think will be really valuable for you. So happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian speaks with leaders from around Australia to bring you their leadership story and share their insights about being a leader. To further help you build your leadership capability, Julian shares his own insights about leadership and the tools and techniques he uses as a leader. Well, welcome, Cameron, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Julian. Really appreciate taking the time to be a part of it so that everyone has a, a bit of a sense about who you are and what you're doing right now. You can just take a moment and, and share where you are. Yeah, it, it's funny because I've had a, a certain narrative for my whole life and I've, I've always found that question really easy to answer that I was a CEO of an AFL footy club for, for 25 years and particularly if you're in, in Melbourne or the southern states, that actually made sense, whereas now... Uh, Probably more than anything, I, call, I think of myself as um, as a teacher uh, and a teacher of leaders, and mainly a teacher of uh, leaders where the responsibility sits with them. And, and so that would be in the main chief executives, but also in some cases coaches of you know, senior sporting teams and and the like. And have basically tried to create in some ways um, the means by which leaders learn in a way that I was always seeking to learn throughout my time in, in sport. And, and so I'm quite dedicated to creating what I would consider the, um, the, the most accessible but also challenging leadership experience for, for people who do have an appetite for what I'd consider high-performance learning. Okay. So you're CEO of uh, Design CEO. Yeah. Is there an interesting fact about uh, your business that people might be interested in hearing? I suppose just even the way it came about, but the thought that it's a design. I've always had uh, an interesting mix in, uh, in that whilst I've been a, a CEO in elite sport for, for 25 years, which is unusual in itself to do something for that long, I also am an artist as, as well. So I've, I've, up a couple of years ago, I went back and studied fine art at the Victorian College of the Arts. And so, and I love the design element of that. I, I love the, the fact that you can look at something in its current beauty, in its current form, and know that there's been an evolution and, and some mastery or whatever has gone into actually creating it to its current form. And I'd always like to know what the backstory is as to how it got there. And there might be something really simple and clean in a, in, in a timeless way, uh, but you know that the, there's, a, there's a certain amount of, of, um, of just learning and genius and capability or whatever has actually gone into creating that. So so I call it design CEO because I think ultimately uh, leaders have to design their own form of learning to give themselves the best chance of, uh, of actually being the leader that they want to be. And and once you actually get into senior leadership roles, no one does your learning for you. You know, you have to do, you have to actually drive your own form of learning. Uh, it's not like we're going to, whilst you might go into the odd, you know, classroom in some shape or form, it's generally you're in a classroom of based on your own initiative. And uh, so it's about designing you know, a mechanism by which you lead. And uh, it just come to me at some point that seemed to make sense. And, uh, and I've been writing that one home ever since. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So I'd like to take you back, yeah. all the way back to your first significant leadership role. Yeah. You know, you're able to share with the listeners a little bit of context what that was, 
Yeah, yeah, well, it's actually a long time ago now. I went straight from school and worked in sport. I went, I worked at the Melbourne Football Club, and uh, my family was uh, or is uh, a very well known football family. My father was uh, an administrator uh, in the AFL and very successful, and a cousin who played played AFL footy and coached AFL football, and uh, and his father umpired a grand final. So there's there's a long, you know, big heritage in my family. So I always had a great love of the game. Didn't really know what I wanted to do when I left school, but I ended up, there was a job as Fred Head Administrator at the Melbourne Football Club in my last year doing Year 12. And so I applied for the job. My surname, Schwab, would have played a big role in you know, the fact that I got the job. But the coach of the club at that time was Ron Barassi, who's probably the biggest name the game's ever produced. And so right from the outset, I was given the opportunity to, to sit in on various meetings and match committee meetings, uh, with some of the most important and influential people in the game and probably my my family, my heritage provided that opportunity but I was able to get my 10,000 hours up pretty quickly in the sport and very very early in the piece I was given the role as recruiting manager. I was, one of the, I was the first Melbourne Footy Club recruiting manager, first full-time person who spent their whole life recruiting players. So from the age of 19 or 20 I was you know, recruiting, going out and watching games interstate and country and then trying in those days trying to convince the players to come and play for your club. So so basically having the responsibility of building a football team at a really young age, obviously working with you know, very closely with coaches and, and those sorts of people was probably the first sense that um, I had some responsibility which was outside of just looking after myself <laughs> really. Yeah, and, uh, and that was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And I often think back, had it not been for that opportunity, um, which was given to me really young, uh, I got no doubt it would have played out very different for me because I was still growing up in lots of ways. And uh, I was growing up now with a responsibility for something which is prestigious as the Melbourne Football Club. Yeah. And what were your biggest learnings from that role, do you think? That it wasn't about me. And I think probably most males take a long time to work that out <laughs> <laughs> that we're you know going from sort of selfish to selfless and which part of it is about you and which part's about your ego and I've got no question that I suffered a lot by getting that out of whack at different times as in um, making sure that you were honouring the role and it was about someone other than, than you and it was the club um, but it was also about self-sufficiency as well. About, but ultimately, that I was I was going to have to develop skills to enable me to survive in that world. And and those skills were were not uh, things that I'd learned at school or anything like that. They were probably probably learned through good parenting. I was lucky I had two very you know, strong figures and loving parents, and and so I was able to have that at least as a as a strong support. And really, probably the first thing I learned was the fact that anything worthwhile was going to have to come at some form of sacrifice. You know that it's going to it's going to exact a price in one way or another. And in those days, the thing I was prepared to sacrifice was I was I was I was prepared to work hard, and, and that meant probably even as a young person that I was going to be less social than in in the ways that a lot of my peer group were, because I was. I was, I was on airplanes travelling interstate. I was watching games all weekend. And if you're up all night having a big night out with your mates and you've got to go and watch a young player play at you know, 10 o'clock the next morning, where you, you know, you've got to be, you can't do the same things that they were doing. And so it was a little, a lot of those things, those, those little sacrifices that I, I worked out early in the piece were, were going to be pretty important. And do you think it was during this uh, role that you decided this whole idea of leadership? was for you? Yeah, I like the idea of having, uh, I, I quite quickly come to terms with the fact that whether it was leadership, but it was uh, responsibility, I think, that I was prepared to take on the responsibility that at some point I knew, and then drafting came in, so you had to actually nominate, you had to work out which player your club was going to take. And you're the person with the expertise in that area, so the club was going to turn to you and say, well, who should we take with this draft choice, which happens to be a really valuable resource because you don't get many of them and you have to get it right or give yourself the best chance of getting it right. And and I, I felt comfortable with that sense of responsibility. And that and I think I only became comfortable with it because I knew I'd put the work in 
and um, and having put the work in meant that at least I was giving myself the best chance to maximise the outcome on behalf of the club. And I was really fortunate that I actually worked with people who were genuinely hard-working people who then were able to teach that as a value, as, as a starting point. And probably the only uh, drama in all of that is that you could actually become a little bit one-dimensional as in you become too focused on that in, at the, the cost of other things in your life. But I was a young person, I was prepared to, you know, to wear that. Okay. And how long were you in that role? See, that role, uh, <laughs> excuse me, for, um, so I started when I was about 19 or 20. So I started as the office boy, became the recruiting manager, and I did that for about five years, four or five years. And then I went to Richmond as was general manager then, and it was, um, it was now with the CEO. So I was the CEO when I was 24. So how did that come about? And this, Tell me on the shoulder. On the grave, a little bit, yeah, a little bit. It was, I was watching a game. I was recruiting and uh, I was watching a game at the Junction Oval in St Kilda and a fellow by the name of Paddy Ganane, who was a, a Richmond Premiership centre-half forward in the late 60s and was quite a, an influential figure at the Richmond Football Club at the time. And I knew of him more than I knew him. He knew my dad well because my dad was ex-Richmond and I remember him just wandering up and he was six foot four, big handsome guy and uh, and he just started talking footy with me and, and then... Uh, uh, so I had an interest in working for the Tigers and you know, I was a Mad Tigers supporter as a kid and so there was but I was really entrenched in Mel- at Melbourne at the time. And I assumed it was to do the recruiting, that's what I thought it was about. And um, and he said, No, no, we're looking at and I said that would be hard because I was, you know, you feel very obligated when you're a recruiting person, you feel very obligated to the players you've recruited because you've actually had to convince them to come and play for your club. And I, I'd never felt right about having made or made that undertaking to them, and then you walking into them and saying, "Look, I'm now out of here." That that I never felt comfortable with that. But they, he said, "No, we want you to be the general manager," and uh, I couldn't believe it. Really, you know, it was probably at a time of life we'd we'd had a bit of success at Melbourne. We'd made the finals for the first time in about 25 years, and and it was probably for the first time in my life I was starting to think that perhaps that might be a possibility for me, you know, that I might get to be a general manager or a CEO at some stage in the future, you know, when I'm 40, you yeah. say. And uh, my dad was, because he was ex-Richmond, and and he was executive commissioner of the AFL at that time. And I remember going around and, and seeing him and, uh, and talking it through with him. And I don't know whether he had already had the heads up, but he seemed pretty prepared at the time for the conversation, <laughs> you know, but whether they'd actually spoken to him before they'd spoken to me. And I remember him saying to me, and I've got a really clear recollection of this, I played all my junior football at a, a club called Essex Heights, which was in, in Mount Waverley. And he said, just if you, if you take the job, just, just run it the same way as you'd run Essex Heights. And it was just a wonderful piece of advice because all of a sudden it made it accessible to me and attainable to me. He said, the issues are exactly the same. You know, the more people are going to be reading about it in the paper and more people are going to, there's more dollars involved clearly, a few more noughts on the end of the checks and these sorts of things. But the game is still built around you know, the same values as, as a local junior football club has, which is you know, can you get a group of people who many, particularly in those days, a lot of whom were volunteers and these sorts of things, can you actually get them working or, or, or lining up behind you know, a, a vision, a strategy, an idea of what the future actually looks like? And to have that advice from your dad or having, having the accessibility for a start of actually having someone in your life who I could have that conversation with who was able to re- reassure me in the way that he did um, was just really fortunate two levels. You know, firstly, having him as my dad in the first place and secondly, that he was able to help me with that. Yeah, because I imagine that would be quite daunting. Twenty-four got suddenly got responsibility for a whole football club, yeah, and one of the big four, really. In, it in, was in wasn't one of the big four. That it's certainly traditionally one of the big four, yeah. but it was on its knees at the time. They finished on the bottom, and it was actually during that period we did the SOS campaign, save our skin, and uh, and and that's one of my reflections is a very proud time. But it's it's as as much as it was, a, a, and I think it got. Or received Richmond had their centennial and they, and they had an award for its moment of the century and that actually was the SOS campaign. So that was something I was I was very proud of. But it's actually a reflection on the club. The fact the club was really battling at the time as well. So 
again, a wonderful learning experience. Worked with some tremendous people and uh, was able to do the job for, for, six, for six or so years. And, uh, and so probably in many ways I had my life job uh, between the ages of 24 and 30, and, uh, which is a wonderful experience, but it means you've got about another... 35, 40 years of your working life to go, yeah. and, uh, and and that was something that I think confront. And do you, do, you think, do you think you found it easier to step into that role as a leader because you'd had that sort of recruiting manager role at Melbourne, which is a leadership as well? Yeah, yeah, I probably did. I, I think I made the mistake initially though of not leveraging that learning because I was young. And, and I was actually young in lots of ways as well. I wasn't someone, I wasn't a prodigy or anything silly. I, I was, I was one of those kids who, who, who probably reached puberty later than most kids did. And I looked young, and you know, even I, I think I, I didn't. I was still growing. I think in some ways it sounds, sounds crazy. I was one of those kids who grew up after leaving school and stuff like that. What I thought, I was, I probably was overcompensating to make a point. The thing I was really concerned about was how I was going to be perceived. And again, I was really fortunate that, that Neville Crowe, the president of the club, was was a great person to look up to. And he never actually ever felt, made me feel young. He, he would certainly mentor me and coach me, but never, I can never remember him saying, oh, you wouldn't know this because you're young. It would be only on the basis of, of this may be an approach you might take in regard to that issue. And because of that, I never lacked. He, I think he was probably aware that that, that was a, um, a, a thinking that I could have easily fallen into and he was going to do his best to stop me from falling into it. But it didn't mean that I wasn't really aware of the fact that I had to somehow present myself in a way which was um, confident. or and, and I think I overcompensated on that a lot. And I, I tried, and, I, and a lot of my peers as leaders in other AFL clubs, the other general managers were, you know, they were all 20, 25 years older than I was. So, and I, and they come very much out of the, um, they were baby boomers out of, you know, the very much control type uh, mentality. And so I try to be a bit like that. And after about 18 months, I worked out that the skills that I, I learned as a recruiting guy was probably the best thing to try and leverage, you know, which was, when you're a recruiting person, you have to be good at talent. When you're a recruiting person, you have to be good on strategy. When you're a recruiting person, you have to be good on the hustle. You know, all these things are actually really important things to have as a as a senior leader or a CEO. And I was choosing not to use any of them. Uh, and then that penny dropped. And and when, when that penny dropped, I then worked out that it, the best approach to any form of leadership is is bring it as close to your you know, the stuff that comes naturally to you. And as close to your what I call your pure functional capability, the stuff which is you've developed higher levels of expertise, because they're the things which are going to give you your confidence, and and you can you can actually take yourself back to when you lose confidence, as you inevitably will. And why did you decide to leave Richmond? Well, just it was I had a pretty uh, difficult stage of life. My, my father died in bad circumstance, and um, in the year before. And the club had, had been successful at levels and was probably making more progress than it looked like in other ways. But it, it got to the point where, you know, I, I was probably questioning whether this was my long-term thing in the game in some ways. My death of my dad really hit me hard. It was a, it was a really difficult, dark period for me. And I probably felt that I, I needed in some ways to... Stop being the son of maybe. I'm not sure. I look back on that time as being wonderfully uh, liberating, but I I was genuinely still grieving, and I think in some ways still am, you know, because it, it was a big shock at the time. And because my father, he was always I was always really close to, but most of us when once we get past eight or nineteen, eighteen or nineteen, we're forging our own way. And it's only coincidence if your parent can continue to help you because they're doing something which you're doing. You know, in my case, I was able to maintain that until I was into my mid to late 20s because Dad was such a great sounding board in the sport, which in the game that I wanted to do as well as I could. And then he died. And so it might have been a fear that whether I could stand on my own two feet, I'm not, I'm not sure. 
but I made a choice that um, I was going to study, so I studied two years full time, and I hadn't studied when I left school, so I went straight into an MBA program, and that was a film business school, which was a great program for me to do. And it, and, and the interesting thing is, and I went, and then I stayed on and did a, a marketing masters as as well, which I, I really enjoyed. But about three quarters of the way through, I thought that that, that penny dropped again. Is the thing I really love doing is AFL footy, and there's nothing wrong with it, you know. And and perhaps because I did okay with my study, I wasn't any, I didn't kill it or anything like that. But my my means of actually hearing the information and listening to the lecturers, my filtering system was how would this apply if I was doing the job as a CEO of an AFL club. And that's where I probably set my path. And I also worked out that I had no interest in being a CEO of anything else. Okay. Yeah, it was only the, the only reason, the only appetite I had for that type of leadership was to to do it in in the thing that I really loved, which was you know, the game itself and the people who are drawn to the game. So it was the right move to go back to leave the study and go back into the CEO role? Yeah, well, I finished my study and then got the opportunity of uh, being CEO of Melbourne and which was a club I started with, and that was a tremendous opportunity. Again, it was a, the, the thing which each of my CEO roles, or all of my roles I've played in the game, is the one thing that they've all got in common, and I was appointed five times into football roles over the 30-year period. And each of the times, the team was on the bottom of the ladder. So so that's five lots of wooden spoon leadership. Even as a young person, Melbourne was on the bottom of the ladder when I was 18. Richmond in 1987 finished on the bottom. Melbourne, and when I went back to Melbourne in uh, 1997, finished on the bottom of the ladder, you know, going to Freo in 2001, they were on the bottom, going back yeah. to Melbourne, they were on the bottom. So so they all had that. So whether the jobs found me or I found them, I've never been too sure. But I didn't. I do enjoy the rebuild aspect of it. And Melbourne almost merged with Hawthorne. That was a yeah. big thing at the time. And Melbourne, uh, Hawthorne chose not to merge, so their, their supporters voted against it. Melbourne voted, it was only by a small margin, voted for it, and the, the vote count was fairly controversial at the time. And Hawthorne's response to that was to rebuild the club. And only five years earlier, they'd actually won the premiership, so they are coming off a probably a stronger base, but they were, in, they were in serious enough trouble at the time to think that they should be merging with someone else, so it's obviously a big thing. Melbourne, their response was to go and find a white knight, who was Joe Goodnick, who became the president of the club, and I was then appointed CEO by Joe. And it was a very um, different model to anything that I ever dealt with. He had someone who had no experience in the sport whatsoever, but obviously had you know, brought other things to it, but none, no heritage in the game, no history in the game. And being a football club president's a big role. But the next year we actually, so we finished on the bottom in 97, but then in 98 we made the finals and we almost made the grand final, which were prelim. So it's one of the biggest movements up the ladder. And then 99 we dropped off and we'd also been, the club had been paying outside of the salary cap for the previous 10 years. So I was sort of half managing that and it got messy and then there was a, the club become, it was a very divided footy club at the best of times because it was sort of a pro-merger, anti-merger type environment. And Joe and I had a falling out as part of that and, so within um, with only about three years of taking or going back to the club, I was gone and, uh, and, and felt the, few, the full brunt of what it means to be sacked in, in the public domain. Yeah. And, uh, and so it was Melbourne Pretty Club at that time had given me my best of, best of times and worst of times <laughs> in, in lots of ways. Yeah. 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 And um, so it took a fair bit of rebuilding. Yeah, and that'd be an experience which a lot of leaders, or most leaders, I should say, wouldn't have experienced. No. Sort of well, public well, domain. Yeah, the public element of it. The one thing is you don't have to explain to anyone what you're doing now because they've generally read about it. Uh, but I was still only, so that was in 99, so I was only 35, and I'd, I'd been a CEO to AFL clubs at that point. So it was, it was at a time when, um, you know, I was probably in lots of ways thinking that I might not get that opportunity again. So it was a pretty challenging period. Then you finished your AFL CEO sort of career move with Fremantle? Yeah, we, no, we came back to Melbourne afterwards, but I went to Frio not long after that. So I was fortunate that I was given it a chance. And, and in some ways, I think that only happened because they were looking for an experienced AFL person at a time when they probably had, hadn't had enough of that in when they were first formed. And, and I was available. And, 
and then went over there for seven years and it was just a fantastic period. And yeah. we made the finals for the first time and the club grew a lot and, and come, you know, we had a little bit of advantage and there was a mining boom in WA at the time and you know, there was good rivalry between ourselves and uh, and uh, the West Coast Eagles and uh, you know, we were uh, the two teams were good strong teams at the same time. They won a premiership, we got to a prelim and that type of stuff. So it was a really exciting period and, and it was just a it was a great opportunity to rebuild um, not only my career, but probably my confidence as much as anything, because they'd taken a big whack, and uh, and I felt really, and again, very very good club, terrific people to work with, and uh, and just enjoyed it immensely, and to also have the opportunity of living outside of your own state, and to, to have to even at that stage of life to have to form new support groups and friendship groups and these things, I found to be just a wonderful experience. And you think you, during that, that sort of journey, developed this reputation as the sort of the fixer in terms of going to these, getting asked by these clubs to um, come and... No, I don't know. I don't think so. I probably had an approach, if you like, uh, and it might it might be just a coincidence that I was never offered or a job never became available for someone. And look, perhaps the jobs which do become available particularly CEO roles and coaching roles, generally when things aren't going very well. So you know, not many people are leaving a club when it's at the top of its game because that's what you've actually done all the work to get to and it normally is some circumstance which actually creates that. So I never had that opportunity. There was a couple of times along the way where, where people had approached you and would you take on a job and they generally related to times when I was very entrenched in what I was doing. Um, but no, I, I think I really enjoyed the um, the process of, as a leader, how you actually build belief in an organisation. You know, I think it's almost uh, the, the fundamental, almost, almost your number one responsibility is, can I get this organisation believing in itself? So how do you actually you know, build belief, create belief, and ultimately have belief? You know, how, do you, how do you make sure you've got it yourself, uh, that you, in fact, can put together some form of vision, plan, purpose, reason, whatever it might be, whichever term you want to use, and get people to believe in it enough that they're prepared to align their careers, they're prepared to align their day-to-day activities and responsibilities, that they've got whatever you've created is compelling enough to, to and, and it's only the role you plan it, obviously not to ignore it, it's very much a shared thing, but you're playing whatever role you can to help an organisation believe in itself, often at a time when it's when it's actually struggled to in fact do that. And, and Fremantle had never finished higher than twelfth on the ladder. And, um, you know, its biggest crowd had ever played in front of in a non-derby was twenty-five thousand. And in the end, we were, you know, we were filling the stadium and playing in the final. So that was that was a great thing to be a part of. And and all, all you're doing is your role playing whatever you'll be at that actually is. Yeah. And how did you feel going back to Melbourne? Uh, you know, I was again. I was very. Uh, I, I loved the fact that I was coming back. I felt a little bit of unfinished business because of what had happened previously, but it probably also meant that there was always going to be a little other flavour to me being back at the club. So whether I liked it or not, it was a, it was quite a divisive appointment. You know, those who believed and those who didn't believe, and and as it turns out, it didn't end well. So. But I look back on it as often as some of the best work I've ever done in my career. But I also knew that when it comes to the end, uh, something had to give, and, and I totally recognise and understand that I was probably that thing. You know, for the club to move forward, there was a bit of a cloud hanging over it, and, and the timing ended up being more challenging than what anyone would have ever perceived because it was it was Jim Steins who took took me to taking on the role, and then Jim got very sick, and. And with all our wanting to do the right thing by everyone, uh, it meant that we you know, were so supportive of Jim in, in terms of his um, unbelievable courage he was showing with his disease, but it also created a leadership void in our, our club at the time. And, and we all did our bit to fill it, uh, but it was happening in a, in a quite an organic way and, and often with leadership uh, then it needs to be pretty clear who's in charge. And at different times, I think we got a bit confused as to who was in fact in charge, you know, because that, that wasn't, you know, Jim was in and out of surgery and 
and it was quite clear when uh, Jim came into the club that he was the person driving the change. And then you know, six months later, he was first he was first diagnosed, and, mm. and it, got, it was a very and people were really close to Jim as well. So they were, not only were they feeling it from a uh, you know, leadership perspective, and you know, our leader's sick, but he was such an admired person and he was such close, there were so many close friendships in it all that people were feeling it at a far deeper level than, than just the, when we work at the Melbourne Footy Club, that was much deeper than that. Mm. So I'd like to explore your current role yeah. a little more and uh, are you able to give the listeners any more detail about yeah. specifically what it is that you do? It is, it really came about, uh, as I mentioned before, I studied art full time for a couple of years. So I came out of that and I wasn't sure that I was going to do anything from a leadership perspective. And I kept my eye on the footy and whether any opportunities would come up there. And then I just got my mojo back a little bit for reasons I'm not 100% sure. But And I started to talk to people and I'd almost had every aspect of what I'd done for the previous times prior to doing the art. It was almost in long-term storage. It was, it was at least in the spare bedroom. It was almost in the attic. It was almost packed away forever. And and, and I started to think, well, maybe maybe it has a value in the context of these types of conversations, sometimes. So in, in saying that, I then thought, well, does that mean I teach? And I and I did a I did a uh, profiling tool, which I now use as part of my offering, which is um, it's called Natural Gifts. And teaching came up very high on my natural gifts. And uh, and I never thought of myself as a teacher, but I think mainly as a leader, when I say to people, now stop talking, start teaching. Teaching is actually, uh, I think, a very important part of leading. And then I thought, well, that, that actually presumes people, in fact, want to learn from you. So there's a lot of people who are more qualified as educators than what, than what I am. And, and what I then probably worked out is the thing that I struggled with throughout my career was how I made space for learning and I was fortunate that I got to take that time out to do an MBA. I also went to Harvard and I spent a lot of time in major sporting clubs around the world. I spent a lot of time reading as much as I possibly could and it's interesting that the time that I spent working in Fremantle meant that I spent a lot of time on planes. Like you're over here every second week pretty well. So you spend eight hours on a plane you know, every second week but that's eight hours of your own time and that's quite rare. As much as that's painful at lots of levels it's quite a unique opportunity. I just work the headphones on and read or start writing or start doing other things. And then I worked out that very few leaders make time for that type of learning. So I thought myself then, can I inspire learning in leaders rather than assume that I can take the mantle of a teacher? You know, because I think that's, as I said, that's probably maybe a um, presumptuous probably. And... The line I use is you have to go deep before you go forward. And perhaps because I, I got the sack one time, or twice as it turns out, both one now, that I was forced to go deep. And in going deep, that can take you into some pretty murky places at different times, but it meant that I wasn't just being carried or carried by the momentum of my career. And I think most of our careers are based on momentum, even from the as I mentioned to you before, even from the time you write down your subject choices at school, there's a certain momentum which builds. And so what I seek to do now is to create the learning experience which I sought as a, as a, as a leader. And it builds a lot off the elite sporting model, as in how we educate athletes. And AFL football clubs recruit the most selfish individuals known to mankind, being 18-year-old males who are pretty much used to getting their own way. They've been the best of what they've done. And a lot of the activities in and around their lives have lined up behind their ability. And so that's their parents' lives, that's everyone's lives. And the first value that we have to educate them on when they come into an AFL environment is selflessness. So we take very selfish people and we have to educate them on selflessness. And sometimes it does revert back to selfish pretty quick and we see that in different behaviours at different times. But they are young men. And so there's a certain teaching which philosophy which goes with that, and we call it coaching in the AFL, we probably more likely call it teaching in other environments, on how we actually take people on that journey. So embraced a lot of the high-performance elements of elite sport, but as it relates to senior leaders and, and how they can, in fact, uh, grow at a time when they don't think they've got space for it. 
So it's quite intensive. And the same thing it does apply in AFL footy, because once you go past a certain, once you go past a certain phase, you, uh, you know, Luke Hodge has gone up to Brisbane as a, as a senior person, but he's still in learner mode. As much as he's in teaching mode and coaching mode in some ways, he's still learning. And I think, well, how come an athlete at the peak of his game or even at the very tail end of his career has that mentality? But I talk to senior leaders who can't make room for that. That, that seems crazy to me. So it was creating a, the core of it's a three-day intensive workshop, but there's a period leading up to that, uh, using online, using uh, profiling tools, emotional intelligence, natural gifts, doing a three-day intensive workshop, which is based on what I call um, cohort learning, as in there, I limit the numbers to 12, and that's quite deliberate because I think it's a good number to teach. And people learn from each other as much as they learn from the content of the course. Uh, then what I define as productive struggle, as in you pro you're providing materials and content which isn't totally familiar to them, and it's a little bit of a stretch for most people. And again, that comes out of probably 25 years of the learning experience. And then you give them the opportunity of practicing as quickly as they possibly can. And again, that comes out of sport where, where we might teach a player or a group of players a new drill, and they're out there on the ground practicing it straight away. And they don't get it right first up. It's pretty messy for a while. And then after a while, they start to get it right. And then weeks later, you might see it happen out on the field. So I'm adopting a lot of that mentality. And it also came about because people would often ask you to come and talk to their leadership teams or their teams. And I'd then talk to the CEO, and you'd, you'd have a good chat, and it seemed to go well. And I'd always say to them, how come you, you ask me to speak to the thing which is actually the outcome here? In, in AFL footy, the team is the outcome. The team is the product of the talent and the product of the teaching. And I don't think CEOs spend much time on talent and much time on teaching. You know, talent goes to the HR department. Teaching happens by experience in the main. And the team thing is the product of that. But in sport, we don't everything. We, 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 we just only, we're only focused on talent. We're only focused on coaching. And then two hours a week, we worry about the team. And that's how it works. Whereas it seemed to be a bit asked about when I was talking to businesses. So trying to flip that around, and I know that the environments are a bit different, but I, I, I'm, I'm sure there's more room for leaders to focus much more strongly on making sure that their talent piece is right themselves, taking responsibility for that, and also making sure that they're developing their people in the right way. And how are the CEOs that have gone through the workshop responding to to that sort of the, the methodology that you're yeah. giving them? Well, they're probably self-selects. If you're not up for that, you're not going to do it. But my experience is that uh, I call it from success to significance is the line I use, is there's a lot of leaders who find themselves at the top of the, the mountain. They're doing the job that they've always aspired to or something similar towards what they've aspired to. And all of a sudden, they don't enjoy the view very much. And one of the reasons is that they're doing a whole lot of work, which is very different to the work that they've done in the past because it's normally based on some particular piece of expertise which has given them that opportunity. They might have been great marketers, salespeople, finance people, manufacturing person, whatever it might be. And now they're worrying about a whole lot of stuff that they've never had to worry about before in their entire lives, of which they've got no particular expertise at. And they've been measured on something that they're pretty vague about, you know, where it was actually quite obvious up until that time. And so they've been successful under any measure. And then, there's, uh, then they start to question whether it was all worth it. So the significance thing comes into play. And so part of it is actually swinging people around a little bit and saying the most significant thing you can do, the most creative thing you can do as a leader, and I think this is a Steve Jobs line or someone of that help, is to create a team which has the capacity to fulfil you know, your ambitions and visions and purpose and that you see for the organisation, that you've been able to articulate for the organisation. And that changes it a little bit then that it actually becomes much less about them, which it has been up until that point, and much more about what they need to be able to do and bring. And the word I use is they have to honour the role. You know, don't aspire to be a leader, honour the role, aspire to make a difference. And, and, that, and that's a little bit like those selfish 18-year-old footballers, you know, learning selflessness, that, that even though they're learning a bit a lot older, it's still a pretty important step to take. And when, and when leaders really embrace... The fact that it's this is not something to do, this is actually something to be, you know, they have to be this thing, 
uh, I, I see this, they're really quite um, empowered by that. The challenge always then is that how do you actually measure that, you know, particularly when you're reporting to a board and, mm. and a board's an eight to ten-headed beast or different personalities, expectations, those sorts of things. And so there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fair bit of science and uh, an understanding which comes into that, which then becomes far more interesting conversation uh, for, um, for leaders and chairmen and all that sort of stuff, which I think is really you know, a mm. nice, rich area of conversation. Yeah. So when we're exploring uh, some of your views on leadership, yeah. uh, what's one of the, the biggest leadership myths that you've come across during your time? Uh, the genius myth, I think, probably. Yeah. And I was, I was very fortunate that uh, that even starting as an 18-year-old with uh, the demons and coaches Ron Barassi, is, he, he was wonderfully human. Yeah. I had this view of him as being... I was waiting for him to jump to a phone box and become Superman. I really was. <laughs> yeah. you know, that's, that was my take on him. Yeah. And, uh, and he's always a bit eccentric. And I remember one of the first jobs I had to do at the Melbourne Footy Club. This is when the, the MCG car park wasn't nearly as well lit as what it is now, but he'd forgotten where he parked his car after the game. And I had to go around the car park at the MCG to actually try and find his car. And I found it eventually. But I was only 17 myself. And I wasn't prepared to own up that I didn't have a driver's license. So I had to somehow get a car back to a place. <laughs> and it was a big column shift forward. And so I basically kangaroo hopped his car <laughs> back to a place where, and I told him that story about 25 years later, because I didn't have the courage to tell Ron Barassi that I was only 17 and never had my driver's license at the time. I haven't thought of that story for a long time. That's actually cool that you... And, but to actually realise that he's a guy with all these... He's quite a little bit of eccentricity about him. Yeah. And then I saw that, you know, I saw him struggle because, you know, for all his, his great achievements, we, we never made the finals in the time that he was coaching Melbourne. And in the end, he finishes up as coach of Melbourne with a win-loss ratio of probably 35% or something. So even... So that notion of, you know, this this... The, the genius myth, they're, they're not. They're just a hollow, hard-working, uh, well-intentioned people who have built up you know, great habits and skills and around themselves, but it's not infallible. It's not infallible. And one of the great things any leader can do is actually admit that they're wrong or they got it wrong or they don't know and how you actually create that space and invite conversation, which is quite ambiguous, when your first thought is that you want to come in as the person who's got the answer to whatever that problem is. And the one thing about footy, when you've got 18 teams all trying to win, at the end of the weekend there's going to be nine winners and nine losers. We'll play a draw every so often, but there's going to be nine winners and nine losers. So there's going to be nine people feeling good about themselves and nine people not. Whereas you and I can do business, we can both do well in sport and don't get that. And so recognising and seeing how people responded to the winning and losing was also an interesting thing on leadership as well. I saw some very successful businessmen running massive, massive organisations who could not cope at all with the winning and losing when it comes to April Fool. <laughs> at all. You'd see the best and worst of their behaviours, particularly in the aftermath of a big thrashing or something like that. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Can only imagine. <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah. How do you describe yourself as a leader? Uh, my personal trademark is... I write on the top of my journal every day is the words finding something. And it came out of that period where I was really struggling that I talked about before. And initially it was a it was a call to find a form of resilience, if you like, to find a means by which I could uh, uh, have confidence in myself and belief in myself and those things. I use it now on that with that same thought of the success to significance thing that and I, might, I ask people, I say, well, what uh, do you do a to-do list each day? And most people say, yeah. Well, finding something then relates to action because you have to actually do something. You actually have to, no good just thinking about it, you have to actually be able to put it into, you know, you have to be able to motivate action and get it actually happening. So the importance of doing, I get that. And then I say, well, finding something as it relates to learning. So I say, not only do a to-do list, do a to-know list. You know, and a to-know list can then be, what I need to go deeper on, what do I need to learn? So I need to find something more, I need to learn more. And the last little list, which I think you should do quite regularly, is a to-be list, which then relates to purpose. So the long-winded answer to the question is, 
I'd like to think of myself mainly as a learner in, in that way. And I know that I did my worst leading when I was either distracted from my learn, from learning or my ego got in the road and I stopped. But I started thinking that I actually knew the answer. I was, I was coming up with default solutions to... I was coming up with a, um, the, the same solution to the wrong question, if you like. And it generally happened either when my ego was out of control well, not out of control, that sounds a bit too harsh. I, I was too um, confident in that I knew the answer, which is probably ego. Or I was too exhausted to allow myself to even think that there was anything else to be because I, I was just so, I was so tired. And I think most leaders spend a fair bit of their time tired. And uh, so both of those scenarios don't make for good leadership. So the finding something was find something in myself to ensure that I was being true and not allowing my ego to take control and find something as in am I making space for other people and I'm not allowing my own my own tiredness to get in the road of what is best for us. Are there any methodologies, frameworks, tools, models which yeah, you're a big fan of yeah, that, you, yeah. that you actually able, that you use? I yeah, all the time. Yeah. I'm a huge believer in having uh, and it might come back to the teaching piece that even as a even if you are trying to explain something in a conversation now, we can have a conversation where we'll make eye contact, we will not our heads, our body language will come in, but it won't come across necessarily through the means by which people will listen to this. Yeah. And and this is still only limiting it to a very small form of the means by which we communicate. So if you're going to try and explain something, have you got a um, are you clean in terms of what you're trying to explain? Do you have a metaphor for it? And I'm fortunate that coming from sport, there's a lot of really cool metaphor that you can actually draw upon. And do you have a model and a framework? Does it mean you put a model or a framework, even if it's on a whiteboard or on a sticky note or something like that, people position themselves on that model? And I would say then say, do you have a story or an image or something like that? And, and if you've got those things happening, and that, that's going to cover a whole lot of different learning styles. And the first thing... You know, the first time you say it, people mightn't resonate with it. The second or the third thing you do, oh, yeah, I get the metaphor, or I get the, yeah, I now know what you're saying. And and when you see that penny drop, that's a that's a wonderful thing. So, yeah, you know, I'm, but I, I try to keep the metal, the, the models to to the the ones that we we learned in year seven. Basically, it's either a Venn diagram or a two by two or a graph. That's fundamentally it. And the most important model. I use this from a fellow by the name of Chris Tipler. His name is, he wrote a book called Corpus Rios. He's an Australian guy, strategy guy. It's a very good book. Corpus, C-O-R-P-U-S, and Rios, R-I-O-S. And I think from memory, the Rios, it's in capitals, is reasonable imagination of success. It's a lovely, it's a good term. Because he's basically saying that all strategy needs to have, it needs to have two things aligned. And the first one is ambition, and the second one's capability. That ambition is just words, basically, and capability is actually our thing. <laughs> you know, we need to be able to match it. And if you get ambition ahead of capability, you're going to overpromise. And the minute you overpromise, you're in fact uh, breaching trust. You know, that's in we're asking people to do something they're not capable of doing, and so we're being unreasonable. And also, you're actually you're going to be encouraging perhaps behaviours that you're not seeking because people are going to try and fulfil your unreasonable ambition rather than, in fact, do the things they need to do to grow to fulfil the ambition at some stage in the future. And most capability comes about through quite an organic way. And when we try to fast-track capability, we can get ourselves into a bit of trouble. Now, we end up importing too quickly. We don't end up inducting properly. A whole lot of stuff goes on. And often we're bringing people in based on their technical ability rather than their, their character and their, you know, the, the type of person they are. So I love that, that notion of ma matching ambition and capability. And what that then does is that ambition you can then articulate in the form of expectations and capability is just then performance against that capability. So your only important measure in any business, therefore, is performance against expectations. And that's just a measure of ambition versus capability. And if you just bring everything down to performance versus expectations, that's a wonderful thing because you get to choose your expectation. And people say, oh, therefore, you choose a lower expectation. Well, maybe a lower expectation is the right expectation at this stage because we've got a very underdeveloped organisation or 
Uh, the expectations for uh, the Carlton Football Club at the moment are very different than what the expectations are for the Richmond Football Club. You can't support by the way the way you just huffed. Yeah. Yes. So so they have now. You know, there's no. Unfortunately, what happens is that in elite sport is that the expectations we are regularly over promising even when we're trying not to over promise because the actual everyone everyone gets so frustrated with losing that they actually they, they live off this hope if you like and every so often someone like the Worcester Bulldogs bob up and win the premiership from seventh or something like that and that makes it all of a sudden something that everyone can do well it's only happened once in the history of the game so you know and, and they've, they've struggled ever since as well Whereas the Tigers was a long-term build towards that. They actually only had one bad year, and everyone says, oh, they came from nowhere. But they had very high, what they call cohesion rating. They'd spent a lot of time together through good and bad, their core players. So I love that one model is just simply putting in uh, ambition at one end and capability at the other, a simple graph, and just mapping out where we are now. And, um, and then if you're asking if people do more than what they're capable of, and I love the saying, you know, Neil Gannahood uses it a lot, he says, when it's all said and done, more is said than done. You know? And so ambition is just a said thing, capability is a done thing. How do you measure your success as a leader? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, I love, uh, I just, uh, I, I always come back to three questions on that. I ask, the first question I ask is, what does this role expect of me? And so having it clear in your own mind what the role expects of you, particularly as a leader. And I think that is often dependent on what's going on at the time. And then the second question is, what do I expect? You know, what what does this? What do I expect of the role? So, what do I expect of myself? What do I expect of the role? Because it's quite reasonable that you have expectations the other way. You mean your career is aligned to that organisation. And the last question is, you know, what do I expect of myself? Because often we know that anything worthwhile is going to call on some form of sacrifice, some sort of gear. But if that's actually at the the cost of your family or the cost of your well-being or the cost of your health, you know, whatever it might be, well, that's exactly way too big a price. So every six months, just to ask yourself those three questions, just write them up on a whiteboard and stick it out of mouth. And the next time you write them, don't look at the last time you wrote them because it's got to be your context as you're feeling at that time. Whereas what tends to happen is when you look at the last one, we all sort of half cheat. And we just go, we just, we just marginally change. It's like adding 10% to our last year's budget and thinking that somehow we've done something strategic. You know, it's a little bit like that. And then same questions I use in, in strategy, I, I think, can apply to people. You just ask yourself the question over time, what does winning look like for me? In the same way as you ask your, your, your organisation that question, what does winning look like for us? And then the next question is, well, what do I need to be good at? Because once you've actually worked out what the winning starts to look at, that should then actually give you some sort of idea of what skills and capability you need. So they're strategic questions by definition. And then the next question is, what am I going to do? What am I actually, what actions am I going to take here? Or what are we going to do? And the final question is, how will we know? And that's how we're going to measure it. And so my measurement personally always comes down, well, what, what was my expectations and how did I go against those expectations? And like most crazy, ambitious men coming through this system, uh, we tend to actually have way higher expectation of ourselves than we've ever got the capability of delivering on. And hence, we can put a crazy pressure on ourselves if we're not careful as well. So moving in terms of the future, yeah. what, what, what does the future hold for you? Where are you uh, looking to go? Uh, I'd like to get a nice mix of this teaching and also art. So I'm going to keep drawing and keep doing that and make sure I've got room for both. But I I'm, I'm also enjoy, uh, I'm very fortunate I've got um, my mum still alive and I've got a brother and sister who um, we've, we've remained close for all our lives. We still are, brother living in Switzerland at the moment, so a little bit distant. He's CEO of the Global Sports Union, so he's got a pretty big job in life. Yeah. And my sister's a, um, a, a teacher of hearing impaired kids, you know, kids with their cochlear implants and those sorts of things. So, very proud of me. Got a beautiful wife. And we've got two kids. You know? And so that's number one. And we all love each other and care for each other best we can. And then I like the idea of that somehow that everything that I've done to this point, even in this conversation here, where we all learn all the time, perhaps has some value going forward for whoever's interested. And with each conversation you have and with each person you meet, you realise that you're in adding 
value to whatever the next conversation is. And that's that's a cool place. And that's now not restricted in the context of an organisation. It's now the organisation is the one that I've created, which is designed CDO, so you get to actually explore all of those opportunities. And it's interesting even when you present it to people what your key thinking is or your key, thinking, or your, your key ideas are, People say, if you thought about using it here, you know, they come up with a totally different mechanism, you probably found that yourself. Yeah. You, know? mm-hmm. you think, gee, I never thought of that. Yeah, yeah. that sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> and having that freedom to just just to say, yeah, well, I might try that. Like, for example, I'm doing these two one-day masterclasses later this month. Well, I haven't thought about that before. But that just basically came out of people saying, oh, I just want to do a one-day thing really intense and all that. And I'm thinking, well, does that take away from the other thing? And I said, no, no, I'm going to do it. And straight away, people responded to it, and that's a great thing. And I've now created a little one-day program, which I'm really proud of, and I'm, I'm sure, I'm confident, I'm not sure, it's, but I'm confident it can actually help people. You mentioned before about uh, the idea of making space for learning. Yeah. Thinking about that you, you've got your new business and you're obviously passionate about your family, how are you planning to continue to make time for your own learning? Well, probably the, the business in its own way is a learning, sure. you know? and so... That can be as basic as the learning when you're doing your own business, and I'm sure you've done this, is studying what a CRM system you should use or, or working out, you know, what's the most efficient way of producing the content I want to do or what's the you know, what's the mechanism for um, you know, accessing this wonderful uh, database on LinkedIn of, of people who may well be interested in your thing. So there's a, there's a sort of a learning thing going on all the time in regard to that. So it's pretty fertile ground at the moment. Whereas probably after 25 years being in the same industry, whilst it was always challenging you to learn, there's no doubt it changed a lot during that period of time, there was a limit to how much you actually could ever do because it was only going to build on the last piece of learning you had, whereas this is all new. And I found that being an artist for a period of time. I learned a lot about being a CEO by being an artist, you know, much more than I ever thought. You know, I had an art teacher who told me that I wasn't really an artist because all I was doing was... I was telling the full story. I was giving no room or scope for the person looking at my artwork to actually have any, you know, I was being so obvious. And and that was challenging because you actually want to produce art. You're going to put it out there. Well, you want people to say, yeah, I like it. That's actually your <laughs> first thought. And you, and you think, well, who am I producing the art for? And then I realised I was producing the art. The, the key thing on the art was actually almost promoting ambiguity, whereas you could look at it and I could look at it. It's like if we go into the National Art Gallery together and we look at a painting, you say, I hate it, I say, I love it, and you say, well, how come? Yeah. Well, to have anyone looking at a painting say, I hate it, that's actually quite a big thing. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and then I thought, well, that's a lot like leadership because leadership is, in fact, coming in and create... The, the, most, the best opportunity you have with leadership is when there is ambiguity because that gives you an opportunity to really try and find solutions and it tests people out in terms of, well, how good is our team at finding a solution to a problem that we don't know the answer to? Yeah. And it's easy when we've got the answer. It's easy when we've just got to turn pile A to pile B. But when we actually all look at each other and we've got no idea what we're going to do, that's when it gets tricky. And so the art world taught me that. So 25 years of working in leadership didn't teach me that, but actually being an artist for about a minute and a half did. And it all came because a guy, Raf Ishak, who was my art teacher, just said I was being too obvious. And I was. Tough conversation, Raf. Very tough. Lovely, lovely feedback. Yeah. Are you planning to have an exhibition? Oh, no, no, I don't know. I don't know. That sounds, you know, I don't think I've... Well, the way I've just described that, <laughs> I might be able to wear through. But my mum's a painter and she's had exhibitions and stuff like that, so I know how challenging that can be. But no, it's mainly just an expression thing for me. And, I, and, and there's still just also a pure joy in... in um, and I do a lot of digital drawing, but and the, and the good thing about digital drawing is it's quite accessible, so it's frictionless. You just put on your iPad and draw. Mm-hmm. And I quite like that. Uh, and then, um, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but it doesn't matter. That's a good thing. You yeah. don't actually have to set expectations for yourself. Yeah. So you're probably playing in my sort of general category, I suppose, mm-hmm. of sort of education learning where we, yeah. we play as well. Are you seeing any sort of disruptors or are you seeing anything coming in which you think is going to really impact our industry? Oh, gee, I'm, I'm, you've got way more expertise in that than I have. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm finding is that the thing which people still put a real value on is learning in with a group of people. Mm. And as I mentioned, I limit it to 12 because that was the number that we used to come up with around footy clubs where we one of the reasons to have backs, forwards and mids is not just to teach on backs, forwards and mids, it's actually to reduce the size of the group because it's easier to coach 12 to 15 people than it is to coach 45 at one yeah. time. And 
you can then build specific expertise relating to that group. And that's basically what I've sought to do here. But it also means that people bounce off each other. So they don't just learn off you as a teacher, they learn from the wisdom of the room. And when, when there's 12 people in the room, the wisdom gets shared much more easily than if there's 50 people in the room. That's, that's what happens. <laughs> so for all of the you know, major changes that we've made, there's something quite pure about it. It's, it's almost analog teaching in some ways. You know, do we bring ourselves back into a world where we sit and listen and, and make up our mind and get tested and someone comes up with a counter view and how do we actually respond to that and how do we respond to it in a group of, in, in front of other people rather than in front of our, our swearing in front of our screens, you know, where, where you have to actually manage you and control your emotions when there's a counter view, all that stuff, good old-fashioned human relations type yeah. stuff, uh, might be making a comeback. Yeah. So get on, get on to the new way. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, uh, you know when, when I... When I was, uh, I used to drive my daughter to school and she was into her music and I'd put on music and, and I'd go, mate, you'd really like this, you'll really like this. And she'd think it was some song which has just been produced you know, a minute ago and it was Led Zeppelin 4 or something like that because she liked a bit of driving hard rock and music. And she I love this, I love this. I go, yeah, it was made in 1971. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing. I think yeah. sometimes there's, a, there's certain things that just come back to, to what, um, what learning is really about. Mm. And we've got all these means by which we learn, but they're fundamentally the other mechanisms are quite distracted. Yeah. And you go down and, I don't know about you, but I'll be looking at articles on Facebook and I think it's a really, really interesting article, really, and I'm really enjoying this article. And half an hour later, I'm looking at orangutan videos or somebody. <laughs> you know, you're just, you're yeah. just getting distracted, whereas yeah. this is pure, non-distracted yeah. learning. Yeah. I think it's something very powerful, specifically in leadership space around those yeah. conversations those different perspectives that you mentioned. I yeah. Think some online stuff, learning lends itself to online, inductions, yeah. things like that, compliance. But I think the leadership management space, there's something that I think you're right, there's something pure about yeah. face-to-face interactions. I, I do some online as part of my program yeah. because I think it's good to have some knowledge base coming in because yeah. you don't want to spend that time necessarily just saying this model means this, this model means that. So bringing that in. I think online learning certainly has a role if it leads or it's part of some con- other context. If you, I've signed up for a 100 online courses and got two and a half hours into them, mm-hmm. and I'll get back to that one one day, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, the, and, and that's not questioning the value of the, the actual quality of the teaching. It's actually questioning the mechanism by which human beings learn, mm-hmm. I think. And, you know, we, we, storytelling and these things have actually been the timeless uh, way in which people have, in fact, learned. And so I really draw on storytelling a lot. And uh, and storytelling is much better when someone's standing in front of you and telling you the story. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that's also reflected in some of the statistics around accredited training. Yeah. And when you're looking at online diplomas and things like that, the completion rate isn't even in double digits. Yeah, it's crazy. It's versus the national average, which is... And that's pretty low at about 43, 45. And I'm okay actually that it is pretty low because what that actually means is perhaps people were learning stuff that they didn't have a real interest in. Yeah. yeah and they're better off finding that out halfway through an online program. Or a, a, you know, my daughter got into law and she was only in it for about six weeks, but she's now a graphic designer. And I know where her heart is. Yeah. yeah and she got into law because she got a good mark. And then, so she followed the mark and then. That actually that distracted her from the very thing that you know, was probably always there in the first place. But maybe it was a journey she had to go on anyway to, to get to that point. But it was, but to actually, I've got no worries when people want to drop out of their, their thing if it's actually not floating their boat. Yeah. You know, that's just how it is. That's yeah. right. So as we come to the end, any any leaders that you look up to or that inspire yeah, you? Yeah, no, lots. I've, I've, look, I've been fortunate. I, I, my dad, for a start, was, he was really, he, and my mum, so I, I get, I'll be careful there, that, that my parents were very young when they had, had family. My, my mum was only 16 when my sister was born, and so they, I had young parents. And so they were just growing up at the same time as we were in lots of ways. And, and then to have the uh, continuation, as in, I had, whilst my dad died young, he was an active part of my life the whole way through because he was doing the thing that I loved and he, 
he really in many ways introduced me to the game, which has then defined me in, in, a, in a pure way. But what he also did was <laughs> he worked out that through the game was the best means by which he could parent me as well, because that was the thing I had a real passion for. And, and I remember he would we'd regularly sit down and talk about why certain players were great players. And, and he'd often talk about how hard they trained and how hard they worked and the efforts they made to make themselves better players. And the, and the, the key figure in my childhood from that point of view was a fellow named Francis Burke, who was a great Richmond player. And I think the Toyota had over and corn tomato sauce all over the fuse, yeah. And so my father, then I've got uh, Tommy Hay, who was the coach of Richmond at that time. I then go and work with Ron Barassi at Melbourne, and then I get to work with Alan Jeans at Richmond. So I had some yeah. pretty special ones there. When I was in Perth, the oh, Neville Crow was president of, of Richmond. He was terrific. Uh, when I was in Perth, uh, Rick Hart was the president of the club, a very successful businessman, but a very generous person in in what he how he was with people, and, and that was really powerful for me. And also Richard Goiter was my my mentor there for a period of time as well, and he was just uh, had just taken the role as, as managing director of West Farmers and actually involved in him coming onto the board of Fremantle, which then they got permission now as chairman of the Alpha Commission. So that was that was a wonderful experience. And uh, my mum as a as a painter and even people like Brad Fishak who I talked about before as an artist that is a and probably uh, it's then the, the leaders that you the people you follow who you never get to meet, you know, that I um, you know I I've studied a lot of artists over the years and, and, and people have done well and read biographies and all those sorts of things. But um, I love the Beatles. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, and I just think the creativity, how they go from Love Me Do, which changes music, to Sgt. Pepper's four years later, and that, you, that I can listen to the Beatles at any time and think it'll happen in seven years, you know, which is... It's your high school, you know, that's your primary school years or something like that to have that much wonderful creativity in that period. Yeah. Yeah. The right four people together at the right time. Yeah, and circumstances which meant that they, they, can't, they developed mastery and all that stuff. Just a wonderful backstory. I love a good backstory. <laughs> so if people want to find out more about you and everything uh, you do, where should yeah. they go? So my, business, my website's uh, www.designceo.com.au, but I, I'm, I'm really quite accessible on LinkedIn as well, just as, as, as uh, Cam Schwab and, or Cameron Schwab on LinkedIn and Twitter Cam Schwab and... Uh, SCHWAB, but I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm very good. Uh, I'm, I'm very accessible, and it's a it's a medium which rewards generosity in lots of ways. So prepare to put yourself out there a little bit, and it tends to come back. Mm-hmm. Something which has got a billion people on it, you know, from whatever it's got. Uh, yeah, so I, I enjoy that environment. And any last words on leadership for the <laughs> leadership. listeners? Uh, something to something to be, not something to do. Something to be, not so. If it's a do thing, it's about you. If it's a be thing, it's honouring the role. And uh, I like that notion. Well, uh, thank you so much for being part of the podcast, Karen. Yeah, no, uh, no, cool. I'm glad you looked me up and um, I appreciate the opportunity. All the best. Yeah, cool, thanks. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. I trust you found it interesting. A couple of things. If you could go online and leave a review of the podcast, that would be great. Really help us in uh, spreading awareness of the podcast. Happy for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. And if you want to shoot me through an email, julian at synergygroup.com.au. See you next time.